Hello, Radio Kachimbona listeners. Today, I am incredibly excited to bring my Stanford Law School Human Rights Clinic professor, Jim James Cavallaro, who Jim, <laughs> who is now a visiting professor at Amherst College and the president of the University Human Rights Network. We are talking about a report that he wrote actually when he was at the Harvard Law School Human Rights Clinic regarding El Salvador, the youth gang crisis, organized crime, and the role that US imperialist policies, immigration policies in particular, played in the creation of these youth gangs and their confluence with organized crime. I'm really excited to get this conversation started. Again, if you are listening to this, you are a Lit Review patron, and I thank you so much for that. If you're thinking about other ways to support, leaving an Apple podcast review always helps. Please join the conversation at Radio Cachimbona on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hope you enjoy. Thanks. Okay, great. Let's start with your pers- with the work that you've been doing that's been ongoing since we met when you were my human rights clinic professor when I was at 2L at Stanford Law. You were doing critical work holding the Israeli nation state accountable for its human rights abuses and also sounding the alarm on abuse occurring within Australian offshore immigration detention centers. Now you're a visiting professor at Amherst College and the president of the University Network for Human Rights. Do you want to share with the listeners about your journey to where you are now and what the mission of the University Network for Human Rights is? Uh, sure, Eva. Happy to do that. And hello to your to your listeners. So you'll recall when I was at Stanford, when I was a professor at Stanford, I ran the, the Human Rights Center, but most of what I did was run the Human Rights Clinic. And the Human Rights Clinic at Stanford Law School engaged primarily Stanford Law students, but what we tried to do was to engage and work with Stanford Law students and and train students to think about human rights, not only from legal perspectives, Mm -hmm. and and to think about human rights and engaging human rights by coming to situations with the perspective of those suffering rights abuse, those who are, who are oppressed, those who are suffering social injustice. And when, when one does that, when one goes to a community to, to see what is it that the community is experiencing, what are the rights violations, the potential rights violations, and what kinds of solutions the, the communities seek, what, 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 what you find <laughs> is that law may or may not be a central element Right. And it may or may not be an element really at all of the kinds of solutions that that people are seeking. And so you'll remember when we went to, to, to Palestine, we were working and we're still working on this project with my colleague Ruhan Nagra at the, at the University Network. But we we're looking at the issue of access to water for, for folks in Palestine. And there's mm-hmm. a very thick and complicated a set of laws and rules created by the Israeli state in the areas 
of occupation, which have as an effect and, and as a goal, uh, I would say, to ensure plentiful access to water to Israelis, to uh, Jewish Israelis in illegal settlements, mm -hmm. and to deny access to water to Palestinians. Uh, but what we found by in that experience and in many, many other experiences running uh, human rights uh, clinics and engaging in human rights, which I've done for, for the past three plus decades, almost four decades now, mm -hmm. is what you find is you talk to people and, and people tell you what they want right? and what they would like, and, and they don't speak in law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, why would they? And this, and the solutions are not necessarily in law. They often are not. They're often mm -hmm. about documenting the, the ways in which water is denied. So mm -hmm. one of the things we found, for instance, and you know, this is that we've worked with uh, we, a, a graduate student who, who is working on access to water from the perspective of, of the science mm -hmm. of, of analyzing aquifers, how water is taken from aquifers, how it may be taken upstream, so to speak, right. of the, from the same aquifer, so as to draw water and bring it into a settlement and deprive those who've always been able to tap into an aquifer of access to water, those who are denied are Palestinians. And so the point is that what we had to do is design a project that engaged other forms of knowledge, not just law. And so right. to use that as, a, as an example, it's, and that's the way at the clinic we always took on human rights projects is that we work with the communities and see what the communities wanted to do and then we would design a strategy that was responsive. And over time at Stanford, I, I became in, increasingly convinced. And this, you know, is part of my own experience in human rights. I started in human rights in the 1980s, and all of this will come mm -hmm. full circle. In the 1980s, right. I started. I started by working in Annunciation House on the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso. Wow which is literally where we were, you know, a 10 minute walk and you were in Mexico. Right. And, and in the mid eighties, who was coming into this shelter where I was living? I was sort of, I was out of college, young and idealistic and I wanted to help folks. And we were helping people seek asylum. We were helping them move into the country, crossing the border, find, going to see their, live with their relatives in Chicago or Los Angeles or New York or wherever. And we were working primarily with Central Americans who were fleeing the wars in the Northern Triangle. Mm -hmm. This is in the 1980s. And, right. and as I was doing that, I became increasingly aware of the fact that people were, were fleeing violence in Central America. I became increasingly interested in what was my role as a U.S. national mm -hmm. in supporting the death squad regime that was running El Salvador at the time. Mm -hmm. I became increasingly concerned about what was the role of the United States in the world and what was my obligation to try and push back against some of those injustices. But again, that's a bit of an aside just to say at any, at any point where I'm working in human rights, I've always tried to work directly with the, the communities affected. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I saw from, this is in 1985, 1986, I'm, I'm dating myself, from then to now is an increased legalization of mm. the human rights space so the human yeah, rights space in, in the 80s was was very much it was very much activists and community organizers and they were using human rights language as a frame to think about injustice 
mm-hmm. from then till now, the space has gotten very legalized. So now you have to go to law school and you need a JD and maybe you need to specialize in human rights or maybe you go to Europe and you get a degree in human rights because human rights is about law and courts and judges deciding issues. And again, I don't believe that, but that is where the field has gone. Mm -hmm. And so I eventually got to the point where I felt that I was working with law students and some law students are great like you because they think beyond law. Right. Because they realize right. that law law is helpful. But it's mm-hmm. it's literally one tool, one in, tool. in the in, in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. And if you go to a situation, if you use the analogy of the of, of the toolbox, if you go to a situation where I have a hammer, I'm I'm just looking for nails. Okay, if you see a nail, great. But if you see something else, uh, you know, if you see a piece of glass that needs a glazier or right, if you see something fragile and you take out your hammer, you're not going to be effective. And mm-hmm. I think that's what the human rights community collectively, which is hyper-legalized does, is mm-hmm. it looks for ways to engage with legal solutions. And often the solutions are not legal. So long story short, we, we eventually founded this organization, the University Network for Human Rights. Now I'm back east, I, I was teaching at Amherst, I'm teaching uh, also at Wesleyan, and, and I was teaching yes. at, at Yale. And what oh, we're doing is, yeah, go go bulldogs and, and <laughs> cardinals for Wesleyan and, and and so on and so forth. But uh, what, what we're doing, and we're also we're setting up a program with UConn next year, which is mm-hmm. great. I'm I'm really happy to be working in a, in a in a state school with with yeah. a much broader range mm-hmm. of, of society. But what we're doing is we're we're creating interdisciplinary centers where students can study human rights be trained in human rights documentation, practice and investigation, and then engage in human rights without the need to go to law school. So learn what you Super need hard. to know. Yeah, learn what you need to know about law enough so that you can engage in, 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 in human rights. And so that's, that's why I made the transition from Stanford Law School where I thought I'm training more and more lawyers at the same time that I believe that we don't need more lawyers in human rights. Right. We need more sociologists and anthropologists mm-hmm. and, and environmental uh, scientists and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, structural engineers. You know, we need people with different understandings who can come to uh, uh, situations and say, okay, what we need here is to do A, B, and C. And if I can give one more example, you tell me, uh, I, I, that I can talk without stopping. <laughs> and, and no, not- <laughs> this is good. We can, we can do one more example and then we'll get into the Salvadorian context. Okay, good. So the one other example I was going to give is we, we've done a lot of work with a community in what's called Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Oh, wow. And, and, and it's a community in a place called a Reserve, which is roughly halfway between New Orleans, a little close to New Orleans and Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. in Cancer Alley. It's called Cancer Alley because it's a strip along the Mississippi River where there, uh, there is an intense concentration of, of petrochemical plants, all subsidized and, and, and wooed by the state. And, and in that area, there are very high levels of cancer, there are very high levels of, of toxic emissions. We work with one particular community, and it's a community that's right, it's adjacent to the, 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 the lone neoprene producing facility. Neoprene is a kind of uh, stretchy, elastic uh, substance. It's used in wetsuits, so you, you know, mm. that if, if give you a sense of what it is. But the production of it involves emission of a number of chemicals, 29 different chemicals, which have toxic effects, but the most toxic one is one called chloroprene. And the, and the community that we're working with 
we went there because they really wanted us to come. They insisted that we come. Ruhan had been working with them when she was at the Center for Constitutional Rights, my, my colleague Ruhan Nagra. Mm -hmm. And they really wanted us to come back. We, we came back and we went there. We had a number of community meetings. Uh, and I should flag, it's an overwhelmingly African-American community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, working class. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, yeah, that's where, where, where does the state facilitate the, the, the uh, development of, of, of potentially toxic uh, chemical and petrochemical uh, factories in uh, predominantly working class, poor African American, American communities. Surprise, they're not in the nicest suburbs of, of New Orleans. Yeah, not in the French Quarter. Not, yeah, not in Silicon Valley, right? Okay, so we went to the community, met with people, folks, because which is step one is let's let's diagnose, see what the community wants, and hear from the community. Because at best, we we are advocates who are working with the community, taking our direction from the community. It's not about us, it's about them. Mm -hmm. And so everyone told us they knew that folks were dying, anecdotally. They could all tell us their cousin, their uncle, seven people on that block, which is immediately adjacent to the factory, another seven on the next one. And so everyone knew that, but they did not have any data right. or, or studies to show that, mm -hmm. in part because I think the state of Louisiana doesn't want to disaggregate data and tell them who's dying on each block because right. it might make it a little easier to hold petrochemical companies responsible. Yeah. Long story short. That right now with COVID-19, states not wanting to report deaths by race. That's an issue in Arizona. In Lack Arizona? Absolutely. In Arizona, not just in Arizona, across the country. As, I mean, mm -hmm. as we both know, the data show that communities of color are overwhelmingly uh, affected, in, in part because the frontline workers, the nurses, the bus drivers, disproportionately people of color, but also because mm -hmm. of the years of entrenched inequality in healthcare in, in, mm -hmm. in the country. What we're seeing is just a, a flashlight right. shining a light on, on, the, on the brutal inequality mm -hmm. in, in our healthcare system, in our labor system, et cetera. But with this particular community, what they wanted was to know what the level of toxicity and who was suffering and how many people had cancer and how many people had, had emphysema and asthma and other, and other illnesses related to the toxic emissions. And so we went back to Stanford and we realized that, you know, we're lawyers, but th what they want is not really, they don't want lawyer work. They yes. want yeah. a, a health study. And so we, we reached out to people in the School of Public Health, at the School of Medicine, statisticians, and we designed a health study. And then we returned with, with a group of 14 undergraduates, not law students, mm -hmm. undergraduates. Law students went and did personalized interviews. So we had a whole series of narratives and all this is on a website you can look at. It. If you go to, you know, humanrightsnetwork.org, you'll see a video that a Stanford videographer made about this. You'll see- Yeah, we can link to it in Individual the stories, that would be great. I'd love that. But we went back to Stanford, we designed the study, we, we returned after studying research methodology to do a household study, how to do it. We studied, we learned, we worked with the students. We were all trained, they were trained. We went, we took the study, 500 uh, plus households over uh, 10 days, very intensive. And then we came back, we analyzed the data, we brought in the statisticians, we analyzed it ourselves, we analyzed the narratives, and we issued a report that demonstrated fairly conclusively a direct correlation between proximity to this plant right. and, and cancer. Mm -hmm. So, and at a level of, you know, for the statisticians and the scientists out there, you know, if, you're, if your P is 0.05, 
you know, your level of confidence, which means there's less than 5% chance that your results are due to chance, mm -hmm. that's statistically significant. Right. Our P level, our P level was point, not 05, 0.003. So, which is, you know, statistically pretty close saying there's kind of a cause and effect, which you mm -hmm. can't actually say instead of, in statistics, you can say correlation. Right, right, right. Get to that level, it basically means there's a 0.3% chance that this result is, is, is due to chance, that it's not the relationship that, that you're, you're proposing. So long story short, we continue to work with the, with the community. We issued a report. The, the governor now has ordered a, a study of the community. Uh, there's a move to get students out of the school that's, most, that, that's closest. Uh, the EPA was looking into this. I'm very concerned about where the EPA is heading right now. Right. But again, you know, you know, these are bigger political issues, but, you know, we're continuing to work with the community. We speak, speak with them regularly. Wuhan's in pretty much daily contact. But again, we're responsive to their needs. And that for us was sort of was that whole matter, which we ended up finishing with the university network. We started at Stanford was sort of a, a, a crystallizing moment where we realized this is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be working with not just undergraduates, but students from different disciplines mm -hmm. and, and leveraging the resources in universities. Students at universities, yeah. and you know, I, I teach undergraduates, teach law students, want not only to study human rights, they want to engage in human rights and social justice. Mm -hmm. They want to do things, and they, but they want to do it in a structured way where they're getting supervision and oversight. And in, for undergrads and students outside of law, there's, there's really almost no opportunity for them to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what we're trying to do. The university network is create opportunities. So we're working with Wesleyan, with UConn, uh, we're, we're working with Amherst, we're working with Trinity, we're working with the schools in this area in Connecticut. We're working with schools and uh, universities in, in Mexico and in Brazil, oh, great. In other parts of the world. Yeah, and, and the idea is to take advantage of the resources that universities have, yeah. their, their ability to to document and understand and analyze and the mm -hmm. phenomenal energy of students to channel that, to fight back against social injustice in its many different forms. And look at, before COVID-19, I was convinced we were in the midst of a global human rights crisis. And I would say it to anyone who would listen, yeah, I, I think anyone who's, who, who, who's minimally sentient now right. and paying attention at all realizes that the crisis is massive. And that when we come out on the backside of COVID-19, whenever and however that is, the crisis will, be, will probably be worse because while mm -hmm. COVID-19 is happening, reactionaries and those opposed to social justice and human rights mm -hmm. are making hay. They're dismantling governmental bodies. They're undermining environmental protections. They're making it harder and harder for, for poor people to survive. But they're also the- Tax breaks to the wealthy, you know. Right, but also the increased control power and authority that's being given to the executive it's it is the simultaneous breaking down of certain aspects of the sprawling executive state that conservatives like to talk about like the epa that you were just talking about but at the same time it's also the executive taking in in the u.s context taking very fascist measures under the yeah. guise of COVID-19, including completely shutting down the border to asylum seekers in an unprecedented move that totally violates international law. Absolutely. Look at the discourse of conservatives. I mean, be careful. Not you, Yvette. I have no doubt that you can pierce false discourses quite easily as you just did. But 
I mean, one should be careful. The discourse of conservatism, which is, oh, we want a limited state and, and uh, you know, small government. Yes and no. Small right. government, if government is, is defined as an entity that takes resources from all and distributes them according to people's needs so that uh, people across society can live dignified lives. Mm -hmm. If that's what government is, conservatives mm -hmm. want no part of it. Mm -hmm. But if, if government is... Surveillance, policing, no surveillance. Absolutely. If it's surveilling poor, uh, poor communities of color, if it's excluding people from our borders, mm -hmm. if uh, the government is about uh, propping up industries and businesses that probably should not be propped up mm -hmm. and shameless cronyism, mm -hmm. if it's about gutting the state and redistributing resources from poor working people to businesses and wealthy friends of those in power, they're all for that. That is what they're about. That is what, and that is exactly what's happening with COVID-19, as you see these, you know, the first two, three bailout measures are shameless right. transfer of resources mm -hmm. from the public coffers, all of our taxes, to giant corporations and friends of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. While ordinary folks are supposed to figure out how to pay three or four months rent with right. $1,200. Right. <laughs> right. So let's, let's get into talking about the Salvadorian context now. I, it was really interesting to hear that one of your first things that you did outside of college was help asylum seekers, Central American asylum seekers who were fleeing in the 80s, um, because then it seems like you're, you've always kind of kept up on the Salvadorian issues and ended up doing this research report kind of in the early and mid-2000s. So I wanted to discuss the 2010 report that you did and ask in what ways the takeaways that you found there, particularly regarding insufficient and abusive state responses to gangs, are still relevant as we witness the Salvadorian nation state completely failing its citizens in its COVID-19 response and also engaging in fascist practices regarding the incarceration of MS-13 members in state custody. Just wanted to yeah. have you get into what parallels you see between the early and mid-2000s and now. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. No, so a uh, great question. And, and again, the short answer is uh, you can straight line right. from the anti, you know, the, 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 the first ley antimaras and then, you know, the, the mano dura and super mano dura, you know, all of the anti-gang legislation, you know, going back to the early 2000s, going back to, to President Flores, going mm -hmm. back to, uh, to Tony Saka, you know, those measures, when the gang phenomenon sort of burst on the public scene in El Salvador in the late 1990s, those measures, you can straight line from those measures to what we see now. With mm -hmm. some difference in, in the last governments, the, the FMLN governments, you know, with the, with the, the, the truce, the, the tregua, between the gangs, you know, and, and some diminution in, in levels of violence. But basically, the, the, the response of the Salvadoran state to the gang phenomenon 
starting in the late 1990s, but then codified in law in, in the early 2000s, was a hyper-militarized, rights-violating, profiling, mass detention, limited process, and incarceration uh, model, right? Mm -hmm. And not terribly different from sort of the, you know, you look at the war on drugs in, right. in the U.S., except sort of ramped up with levels of violence that are, you know, as high or higher than, than what you see. Uh, the rhetoric is quite similar, tough on crime and mano dura. The, the rhetoric and the ideology, it's, it, you know, it's not by accident. There's, mm -hmm. there's communication between and among the players involved, between, between folks in the U.S. government, folks who are providing military support to El Salvador during the, the, the Civil War, and folks who are running the uh, police operations and the, basically what is a militarized response in the United States as well. It's militarized in terms of its approach. It doesn't involve the U.S. military, although you do have legislation that allows local police forces in the country to buy military equipment, which should be utterly irrelevant and unnecessary in policing, mm -hmm. but is widely used in Ferguson and elsewhere. But the, the parallels, the logic of militarization, the logic of seeing certain individuals as enemies mm -hmm. be contained and controlled. And disposable. And, dis and disposable. And Not the ridiculous. idea of... Absolutely. So the idea, if you think of policing, we take these things, for, unfortunately, for granted. We think they're normal. They're not in the United mm -hmm. States. The idea that the police should go into areas that are crime-ridden, which is a terrible frame, a terrible <laughs> way of right of looking at a, a community, crime-ridden, right? So we're like some infestation of of you know rodents mm -hmm. that need to that need to be slaughtered. Right, like you start with that frame, and which is a terrible frame, but it's common in the United States. So, okay, well, we have these beasts in, that have taken over this this area, this community. We need to go in with the exterminators. Mm -hmm. That mentality, which is is unfortunately one of the dominant tropes in U.S. war on drugs, is it has been in El Salvador the, the sort of the dominant approach. So, you know, when we went and documented in El Salvador. Picked up the book again today and was rereading it. You know, we, we we took six separate trips for a week, two weeks at a time. Spoke with hundreds of people, interviewed hundreds of gang members, interviewed police, interviewed prosecutors, interviewed judges, interviewed civil society, interviewed community organizers, interviewed folks in, in uh, who work with church-based organizations, school-based organizations, sports-based uh, organizations that work with communities. Basically, we tried to get as broad uh, mm -hmm. residents in, in different uh, communities and around uh, the capital out in, in, in different towns and, uh, and cities across El Salvador. We tried to get as many people as possible, data, anal analysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, over a, a number of years. And, and, and the conclusion is basically the response of the state to the gang phenomenon was to try to uh, exterminate or slaughter, kill as mm -hmm. gang members in confrontations arrest en masse and incarcerate. So th those, and again, I'm, I'm saying this bluntly, the discourse was only slightly more polished than let's exterminate all of these right. uh, gang members. But the, the, a lot of the discourse is, you know, is very close to dehumanization or involves dehumanization of gangs. Mata is a term that's, you know, is, 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 problematic mm -hmm. as opposed to pandilla you know you look at the different spanish terms 
but the, the focus was on identifying gang members by initially by their tattoos, arresting them for being on the street, often with no more than that, for, you know, two or three in a group or illicit association, arrest, put in prison. And, and, you know, what happened, and there are interesting parallels with the, with the U.S. here is. I was just going to say the criminalization of undocumented Salvadorians continues. Mm-hmm. And it's the same logic undergirds the way that ICE prosecutes people as well. Just taking really sweeping, making really sweeping decisions, categorizing youth as gang members because they have tattoos, or in some cases, because they wear basketball team caps and Mm -hmm. the ICE agents assume that that means gang affiliation. So that kind of blanket criminalization happens in Salvador and then also is replicated in the logic of how ICE prosecutes um, Salvadorian youth within the U.S. for deportation as well. Yeah, no, and and, and obviously you see this in in, in your daily work, but the the parallels are are many. And and I think they all, the the common point is what you identified earlier is the understanding of whether it's a potential gang member, a young person who looks suspicious to me with my subjective understanding of what that means if mm-hmm. me is the is it a, a police agent in 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 you know in san miguel or in, or in san salvador or if the me is an ice agent in tucson or mm-hmm. you know some other part of the country it's the it's the identifying groups of people as mm-hmm. potentially dangerous as not full citizens mm-hmm. And uh, as and therefore as lacking fundamental rights. Right. So, so when you're when state agents make that decision about people, this the step from there to mistreating those people, abusing those people, maybe tasing or shooting those people, killing those people, incarcerating those people without basis, it's a really short step. It's right. the dehumanization. In, in, if you look at human rights violations anywhere, and I've been doing this for three, four decades, dehumanizing people, talking about them as the others. Mm-hmm. Illegal aliens, as a term, as mm-hmm. people looking from mm-hmm. space, as mm-hmm. opposed to individuals who are in our country and part of our community who may not have the documentation that is arbitrarily required mm-hmm. by the state, right? Like, which right. is a more reasonable frame. But once you make them illegal aliens, once you make them mareros, once you make them, right, gang members, mareros, once you other them, otherize them and deny them as, as, a, as a conceptual matter, their rights and their humanity, the steps from their abuse are really, really short. And so what you see, if you compare, you know, when we were doing this, this research in the 2000s, up in, up to 2010, when we issued this, this book, we did an interim report first, <clears throat> and then we, we continued researching and issued this, the longer book. But from then till now, you see that it's the same sort of response, talking about gang members, like as though they were subhuman or inhuman mm-hmm. evil villains and not young people who may have committed a crime or may not have committed a crime, may have decided to join the gang for God knows what reasons, et cetera. People who may have done something that is illegal, but they're human beings. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we believe that they continue to be human beings and we should see how we can work with them so that they can find a life path that's meaningful and not, uh, destructive to themselves and others, right? It, when you decide that they're others, they're violent, they're enemies of the state, uh, which is what, in effect, the early 2000s El Salvadoran legislation did, 
mm-hmm. and it's what it's what uh, Bukele, President Bukele, is is doing now right. with the mass incarceration. You you see the photos, which are shocking, of yes. in the midst of COVID nineteen, people literally piled on top of each other, yes, as though they were human refuse. I mean, the photos are so stark and mm-hmm. ugly. In any moment, mm-hmm. to see that you see, we're treating people like uh, cattle who are hurt. Yeah, and cattle shouldn't be treated like that, by the way. But that's right. a, an aside and not our topic today. But uh, in the midst of, of COVID-19 outbreak, it's just an utter disregard for, for their basic dignity and, and, their, basic, and their basic health. And, yeah. and that's, that's, that's the thread that runs through the, the legislation in 2003 and 2004, the first anti-gang law, the second anti-gang law, the, the profiling of gang members, the mass incarceration. And through all of it, one interesting thing, you see that this is also true in the States, is all of it has backfired because one of the things that happened and we documented is that the state put hundreds first and then thousands of gang members into prisons. Mm-hmm. And they basically created a space for gang members mm-hmm. to coordinate their actions nationally and internationally. The gangs became well, more structured. Racialized people. I've talked a lot about how laws and nation states have a role in, in constructing ideas of race. And mm-hmm. I think prison plays a huge part in this because they racially segregate individuals. It's just a chicken or the egg question, right? It's like, did people form the gangs because they had that natural affinity towards each other and then the prison responded by racially segregating them under the guise of decreasing violence? Or did the prison sec- racially segregate people and then that caused them to be able to work together, like you said, and, right. and create a gang? Yeah, I don't know. I think-, I think it's some of each. I think it's some of each. It's a mix, yeah. but certainly, certainly the segregation of gang members and not just in El Salvador in the Northern Triangle in general and I spent a fair amount of time when I was on the Inter-American Commission I, I, I was the rapporteur for the rights of persons deprived of liberty a long name it basically meant that I was responsible in the four years that I was on the Inter-American Commission for documenting conditions in in prisons and I, I did a lot of prison documentation before that but I did a lot with the commission as well and you see this across the, the, the Northern Triangle and in other countries as well, is that detention centers put members of the same criminal organizations in the same space to try and reduce fights within detention centers. Right, right. And, and, and it fosters the, the structuring mm-hmm. of gangs. And then the other way, by the way, the, the other irony, which I can't fail to mention, because I think it's not something that is common knowledge in the United States, but the MS-13... Uh, and the Barrio de Siocho, the you know the MS-13 and the 18th Street gangs, their gangs named for streets in Los Angeles. Right. This began in LA jails and prisons. <laughs> it began in LA jails and prisons, and on the street in Los Angeles, in neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So, right. And again, what's interesting, you know, the the one of the two big gangs formed as a as a response of Salvadorans in Los Angeles to the the relative strength of of gangs of Mexican mm-hmm. uh, and, and Chicanos, Mexican-Americans mm-hmm. and, and Chicanos in Los Angeles. Right. But the, the point in here is where, with, where the things backfire, much as the 2003, 2004, the early 2000 response of the El Salvadoran state to, to, to you know, have the crackdown backfired by creating more and more gang members and strengthening the gangs. Same thing in the States. Right. In 1996, the U.S. changes its immigration law mm-hmm. with IRCA, mm-hmm. And, and all within the, the, uh, another piece of legislation, but 
Perk is probably the more important one. Yes. And it decides that people in the United States, even if they're permanent residents, even if they have green cards, if they commit certain crimes, mm -hmm. they will be deported back to their countries of origin. And mm -hmm. when they decide that, and it's part of the uh, this sort of this anti-crime hysteria that in the nineties anti-drugs as well. Anti-drugs, anti-crime, but it's it's just part of a of a of a, of a racialized discourse, mm -hmm. a really ugly discourse that you know now people talk about it. You hear people talking about this now when they look at say Joe Biden's record and say, "Hey, you're the guy who who, who gave us the, the crime bill." But in that oh, package God. of legislation, oh, I can't even get started on that. No, we're not, we're not going to talk about Joe Biden. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's just it's an entree for people to have heard about these topics now. The topics from 20, 20 odd years ago. But right. one element in, in that package, the anti-crime package, was this idea that even if you're a green card holder, which means you're, you're, you're functionally, you're, you're, you're a US national, even right. though technically That's what you're a lot not. Of people feel like, except when they commit a crime and then realize they're about to be double punished by being placed into deportation proceedings. Absolutely, and, then, and, and individually, it's just, it's just ugly and unjust at an individual level, someone who, who, I mean, literally, because I, I spoke to people in El Salvador. People, it, it, when we were, just to give you an example. We went to El Salvador, we, we speak to people who had lived their whole lives in, in the States, who maybe came to this when they were two or three years old. Mm -hmm. And then they committed a crime, and then they're put through the immigration system and returned to El Salvador. Mm -hmm. so, you know, and most alienated as a result. These are very vulnerable youth who are low income and who are basically being uh, like a volleyball uh, between these two nation states that criminalize them, punish them, and treat them as disposable. Absolutely. And, here, and, and part of this is at, at, at an anecdotal level. But, you know, we, we went, we're in El Salvador. We're interviewing a lot of gang members in prison. We interviewing them mm -hmm. on the streets. But the ones in prison. And I remember some of the people that I interviewed, I interviewed in English. Not right. I, mean, I speak I speak Spanish. Right. I didn't even in English because they didn't speak Spanish that yeah. well. Mm -hmm. so, but they're Salvador nationals because they were born in El Salvador. They have no contact with El Salvador. And this happened in hundreds of cases. So folks, think, think about this. Their family flees El Salvador during the Civil War. They come to Los Angeles. Their whole community, their whole life is in Los Angeles. Right. They commit a crime. They go to jail. They get returned. The only family that they have, literally family, when they go back to El Salvador, is the clique is the is the is the gang? It's the mm -hmm. it's the MS13 or it's the 18. Those are their people because they don't have any more relatives. Everyone right. left the country, so they're going to go hang out with their homies and they're going to be involved in in, a, in gang life. Yeah. So what the U.S. did, what the U.S. did by deporting thousands of folks mm -hmm. and hundreds of folks from prison mm -hmm. with some ties to gangs mm -hmm. to El Salvador is they in effect, created in El Salvador, the mm -hmm. MS-13 and 18. Remember, streets in Los Angeles. There's no 13th Street in, in, in San Salvador. There's no 18th Street in, <laughs> in San Salvador. It's right. in Los Angeles. It's in the barrio in Los Angeles. And they basically exported the crime problem to El Salvador. But here's what always bites in the tail, to not use the other term, is, <laughs> is by allowing... By, and fostering and facilitating the growth of these gangs in, 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 in Central America. What's happened? The gangs then have strengthened, become transnational, and are largely in control of, in some areas, right. transport of human beings into the country. 
Mm-hmm. So the route for legitimate refugees and other people who are trying to come to the United States goes through the gangs. And, yes. uh, and then also you have some uh, gang presence. Some, it's not, I don't think it's, it's, it's nearly as, as, as extensive as, as Trump would have us believe. Mm-hmm. But it's basically, it's, it's, a, it's a beast that the United States created. And now it's creating a flow of people into the United States who are fleeing gang violence in El Salvador. You, I mean, if you, if you talk to any immigration lawyer, any asylum lawyer, they'll tell you they have, you know, and I, I write affidavits all the time for people who are fleeing violence in El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, anywhere in the Northern Triangle. They're mostly fleeing gang violence, some police violence. So the, the, the onslaught of people into the United States from, from the Northern Triangle is a direct product of U.S. policy. Exactly. Just as it, just as it was with the war in, 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 the, in, the, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. The United States was fostering morally bankrupt governments or slaughtering their own people, and guess what? People flee, and where do they go? They go they come to the United States. And the United States says, why are you coming to America? <laughs> <laughs> I also think it's important to recognize, so just like you said, this U.S. intervention caused mass migration, and then also the U.S. systematically refused to grant asylum to these same individuals fleeing the Northern Triangle. Mm-hmm. There had to be litigation to intervene because so many asylum seekers were had their asylum claims denied without due process and it became clear that it was, it was discriminatory. And that was when um, the ABC litigation came about. And uh, I point that out because so many Salvadorians lived in the U S for long periods of time under temporary protected status, which Mm -hmm. actually the, the justification for was an earthquake that happened. No, no mention of, U.S. intervention, the Civil War, the the violence that people were fleeing from that. And, you know, in doing so, the U.S. created just kind of codified precarity for individuals whose only method of, of um, status was TPS because... Right. Um, you know, TPS is like, um, Dr. L- I interviewed Dr. Lacey Abrego and she called it liminal legality. It's this weird in between where you have a work permit, but you don't have an option of becoming a permanent resident. And so that's also, I think, mm-hmm. something that contributes to the evolution of youth, this feeling of not belonging in either country. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, 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 it's a status it's better than not having status, but it's a second class status mm-hmm. and it's an alienating status. Right. And again, we can talk about legal doctrines, the, 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 you know, the idea that one is a citizen in the country in which one is born, which is generally the norm in the Western hemisphere mm-hmm. as a legal notion. But if you talk to folks and, you, and this, you know, you get with, with DACA and, 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 uh, for, and, and with, people who, whose life, their reference points, their community, their friends, mm-hmm. their school is in the United States. Mm-hmm. What makes them any less American mm-hmm. than you or me mm-hmm. or someone who is born in the United States? What makes them less American than someone who's born in the United States and then go resides in France mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. 20 years and then returns, but they've got a passport that says, United States of America. So again, it's one of those areas where the law fails mm-hmm. to, to re- respond to reality. And then of course, you know, from a critical perspective, you have to ask yourself, why does the law fail to respond? And when you look at TPS, it's a halfway measure. 
it's a it's a humanitarian measure but yeah it's not designed to create a pathway to full citizenship mm-hmm. it's not designed to create uh and, and to recognize that people who live here and work here or study here are part of our community mm-hmm. and, and and that and that the, the idea behind you're an american and you're not an american often is either obliquely or directly laced with an ugly ethno-nationalist agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that folks who are Irish, uh, who have no documents, are not getting racially profiled. Right. <laughs> you right. know, nothing, nothing against or in favor of the Irish. I got a little Irish blood. I hide it well, but I have some. Uh, but, but, you know, it's just, it, the law provides forms that seem to be rational, but what's driving them are often goals that are utterly unacceptable because they're racist, because they're classist, because uh, they don't respect the core human rights and human dignity. Right. how you were able to gain access to Salvadorian prisons, for example, when the Salvadorian nation state is not particularly well known for being transparent. I want to ask about the fixers you had on the ground for your research. If you could explain what that is and why having solid relationships with people on the ground is necessary for accurate human rights documentation. Absolutely. Look, we were able to gain access. We worked a lot with a woman named Rosanaya, who was great is great and she does a lot of community organizing and she is really well connected both in communities but then also she knows people in in positions of authority and so we were we were able to to access uh detention centers what's interesting is just just a footnote generally in latin america i've been in in probably a couple hundred detention centers maybe more in 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 10 different countries in, in, Mm -hmm. in in latin america and in a couple of detention centers in the states and the hardest place to gain access to detention centers of all of the countries that I've been in is the United States. With the most limited access. <laughs> I, know it is. That. I know all yeah. about that. <laughs> just, just remarkable. And yeah. you know, the, the paperwork, and then they put you in this, you know, with a plexiglass separator and, you know, and, and the U S model of detentions of detention centers and prisons, you know, I'm happy to talk about that some other day is, is gruesome. It's, it's, it's really one of the worst, things about the United States and, and one of the things uh-huh. that the United States tries to export is the prison prison yeah. model. But let's put that to the side. But in El Salvador, we got access. Your question, though, is about working with folks uh, in the community or, or in the country or in the, in the region mm-hmm. that you're trying to advance social justice. So first, you know, to begin, the only way, legitimate way to be working, I think, in, in, in human rights is, is working to advance the interests of communities that are affected mm-hmm. when, when they, they want you to advance their interests. And so you've got to be in touch with those communities. And then you do that with the communities themselves or, or, or with intermediaries or folks who are, who are working with those communities directly and, and recognize often, you know, we, you know, this is what we do. We understand what's going on, but because of your, 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 your location and your, your situation where you're situated in the world, you 
might be able to help us with our agenda, right? So mm -hmm. we're in El Salvador and you, because you're at some university in the United States, because mm -hmm. you have access to the US government, because you can write in English, mm -hmm. because you can uh, use international four, et cetera, you can help us. Yeah, you can be an ally. You can be an ally, but it's, it's it, again, I say this the, the students that I, that I used to work with at Stanford Clinic and the Harvard Clinic before that, and with students that I've worked with on the university network is, you know, unless it, it's you, your situation of rights abuse and we'll work with you, if you're on this team, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's, it's about someone else. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, you know, nothing about us without us, nothing, right, as, mm -hmm. as, a, as a sort of a, as a, as a concept, has to permeate what you're doing. So you've got to work with people who are in the communities and they're, they're your, your, your entrees, they're your access. They're the people who are going to legitimate you so you're not parachuting in because right. one, one day I decided I'm going to change things in, in El Salvador or in Brazil or in, or in, or in Palestine. Uh, and, and there, the, you know, the, the, the upside is when you, when, I think when you come to, to communities with a humility and an openness mm -hmm. and a recognition that it is about you and your demands and your legitimate dignity and rights. And we're here to help in ways that you think we can be helpful if we can. When you start the conversation in that way, you know, the, the, the level of, of receptivity is extremely high. When you start the conversation with, I have arrived from Stanford. <laughs> Not gonna go well. <laughs> Not gonna go well. Or, or I am here from whatever, from whatever, the, from Human Rights Watch. We are the most important human rights organization in the world. Or I'm from Amazon. Like if you start there, it's like, you know, it's not gonna be pretty. PFO, you know, we're done here. Right. So it, it's and, and that's one of the things that is is really important to to, to teach folks. And the way to teach folks is, which I find is to take, you know, we do a lot of training. We do a lot of critical reading with students. We do a whole intense week long simulation exercise. You know this, you did this when you yes. were at Stanford. We've expanded it further now with undergraduates. We had 50 or 60 actors playing different roles. When oh, we did it with, 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 with undergraduates who did jointly with the university in, in, in Puerto Rico. It, yeah. it was great. But when we do, those are things we do before we take students to work with communities. But when students work with communities, they listen to community members and it's really common for students to get a sense after a couple of days of like, okay, wow, like I, I, I really get it. Like I, I, I'm beginning, I see that the, these people who are being effed over in their rights, they're, they understand what's going on. It's not that they don't have a Stanford degree, a lot of them, or whatever mm -hmm. hell degree we're given out, but they understand what's going on. They know who's who, they know what time it is. They know what the problems are. They're just in a situation where they have limited power Mm -hmm. under threat or they're right or they're or they're marginalized and they're like great you want to help us help us right. but don't come here all high and mighty and you know more about my life than i know about my life right so humility is one of the is one of the key things i used to joke i said the most important thing that i, that, that I taught students at harvard and stanford to the extent that i did was humility it's like you know take, eat some humble pie <laughs> and then use you use you got some smarts that's great let's see how we can use them but mm -hmm. but point of departure is recognizing to take leadership from directly impacted people absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. and if anything else and there's a lot of organizations that just work in the human rights field that don't do that 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 want to resolve problems from on high and mm -hmm. want to litigate their way to 
uh, you know, to success and, and, and changing the world and feeling good about themselves. And, 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 so, and there's all kinds of folks out there in the world. But I think if, if you want to do human rights and social justice work seriously, if you're not taking your cues from those directly affected, you, you, you really got to check yourself. Right. When people discuss the violence in El Salvador, they often connect it to, quote, political polarization. Can you really break down what, who the various competing power players in the Salvadorian conflict are and also speak to how historic income inequality has played into this? So, yeah, this is, this is, is the this, this stuff of, of dissertations and books, but I will be as synthetic as I am capable of. The, if you know a bit about Salvadoran history, Central American history, uh, you see sort of the main forces uh, in El Salvador is a very small elite, literally a handful of, of families. Mm -hmm. It has a, has a number between 10 and 20. Yeah. Families literally. that have literally, yeah. that have historically controlled resources, large estates, plantations, rural agricultural producers, very poor uh, campesinos and, 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 and day laborers. And the other powerful forces in, in, in El Salvador society, the military, which has been sort of the behind the scenes force of, of uh, right and even center governments for, for decades. And then, uh, you know, really beginning in most intensely in the late 70s, although in the 30s you have uh, uprisings that are uh, crushed by by the National Guard and, and, and by, the and by military. Mass slaughter. Mm -hmm. but, but it's really in the 70s that you have the organization of leftist revolutionary groups in, in, in the FMLN and full-blown civil war, sort of the killing of, of uh, Archbishop uh, Romero is sort of a seen as, as a turning point uh, appeals to reason, appeals to to trying to uh, uh, pacify and uh, fail. You know, when the killers are able to kill the highest representative of the Catholic Church in what at that time mm -hmm. is an overwhelmingly ninety plus percent Catholic country, when they can kill <laughs> him while he's serving mass, mm -hmm. literally broad daylight. In broad daylight, it's it's a, it's a it's a, it, 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 it basically is is is, is a is a statement that democratic processes, peaceful processes are not working. Mm -hmm. and, and I say that symbolically, but really by then the conflict is, 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 is full-blown. And, and then it, it devolves over the next decade plus until 1992 in a full-blown civil war. So the forces are the military, the arena, the, the right party, there's the Christian Democrats at that time, and then there's the FMLN. Mm -hmm. And after the peace process in, in the Zapotepec Accords and signed in Mexico and then the UN uh, involvement, you have a transition and you have uh, elections, but you still have you know, the military as a presence, not as powerful as before. So they continue to be a force. The ARENA right wing party continues to be a force and the FMLN is a political party. And those are the sort of the, and the Catholic church is a major force, although evangelicals. Uh, b begin to grow as they yes. do throughout Latin America yes. in the 90s, 2000s. So those are sort of your big... And, and Central America in particular, very interesting. 
Very, well, this is, that's another U.S. export. Yeah. There's a lot on that. I mean, how, yeah. No, I've kind of recently learned about this, about this neo-evangelical movement that has infiltrated Central America and that, that uh, preaches this gospel of prosperity that it's very much mirrors U.S. capitalist individualistic values about pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and with ties to to, to pastors in uh, from the United States who, who fill stadia with yeah. preaching in English with simultaneous translation uh, or consecutive translation. So huge. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. But let's let's yeah. just say that's one of the forces. That's another and podcast it's, and episode. It's another. It's another joke. And there are people who talk about it with, with more authority than me, for sure. But it's a force that moves uh, politics to the right, and and then you have two. Uh, you know, from 92 on, you have presidents that are from the arena for, uh, you know, uh, Cristiani, who's, who continues, uh, Calderon Sol, then Flores and Saca. So you have uh, arena, 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 arena presidents un un until 2009 when the FMLN, which has converted into a political party and runs for uh, uh, candidates, uh, in every presidential cycle and loses, right? Mm. But then in 2009, they win. So for, there's been, there was a decade in, from 2009 to 2019 where the FMLN is in power. And in this last election, which uh, Mukele was, Mukele was in the FMLN and then he was pushed out for complaints and series of issues. And then he sort of creates his own party but I, El Salvador, in part because the media beat down on the FMLN and 10 years in power and some corruption scandals, it's a confluence of factors that leads El Salvador and voters to overwhelmingly choose uh, Bukele and, and, and his populist, mm. difficult to describe political force, right? It's just, I'm young, I'm handsome. Yes. Um, right. Uh, it's very personal. It's very, and again, there's a long tradition of that in El Salvador and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, I think Mukele is showing himself to to clearly be a, a right of center authoritarian uh, uh, governor. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure that was entirely clear beforehand, but he does have high levels of support, uh, despite the the rights violations, in part because. There's a tradition, this, again, this goes back to 20 plus years ago, of demonizing the gangs. And I think he's tapped into that, that sentiment. Mm. And again, the gangs are problematic. I'm not here to say that it's oh, gangs definitely. Are, or, or <laughs> yeah, no. spring sunshine and kumbaya. I love, so. Yeah. I, mean, I know, you know how, awful, how awful the abuses are, but it's a yeah. complicated picture. And, you know, calling people animals, demonizing them, is exactly how we got to this place in the first place. So mm -hmm. it can't be how we proceed forward with these folks. You know, we really do have to move past this carceral idea of people being disposable, of people not being redeemable, and of people being such a threat to public safety that we should deny them all liberties. Yeah. We need to no, I, that ideology. No, the, I mean, the, absolutely. The idea, and, and, and I like the frame of redeemable and, and irredeemable, the idea that people are irredeemable. You, you know, look at the, 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 the phrase on this, the idea on this is, you know, no one, 
no one should be reduced or can be reduced mm -hmm. to the worst act that, that, that they've committed. Yes. And I think if anyone, you know, if you, any one of us, if, I, if we look ourselves in the mirror and say, what's the worst thing I've ever done? The worst thing I've ever done, whatever it is, I just don't tell me, but think about <laughs> it. And I'm, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to know. This is just to do in your own head, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're, just, just converse with yourself. Mumble if you want. Don't speak out loud. <laughs> whatever that is, imagine if that's all you were. Right. If everywhere you went, people were like, oh, that's the one who, whatever, slept with her, her best friend's partner, whatever, right? Like if that were always the sign that you held up whenever you went, hi, I'm X, I did this in tw 10 years ago, right? Whatever the hell it is, it's something, right? I shoplifted when I was in high school. I'm a thief, I'm a criminal, mm -hmm. right? Whatever it is, if we were reduced to that, all of us always, uh, what a terrible, terrible life all of us would lead. Right. So the, the extension of that is we need to move beyond that. That doesn't mean that there can't be there shouldn't be consequences that people shouldn't no, bear responsibility for what they did. Of course they should, no. but but they can't be no. life ending. Uh, yeah, and and we have to redeem human beings if we believe. And the other, this always drives me batty because you know I, I believe that I'm in a Christian a country that call, calls itself a Judeo Christian <laughs> country, and then you see the folks on the right who talk about Christian values, Christian values. Yeah, for, for the love of Jesus, literally. <laughs> the love of Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, how could you not accept the basic premise of redemption? Right. And, and love of the other. The only way to do it is if you know nothing about Christ and Christianity. And again, I'm not telling people to be Christian. I was wow. raised Catholic. I actually shame. studied. <laughs> Talking know? about shame. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, just, I own it, right? That's where I came from. So... <laughs> But if you pick up the New Testament and read it, yeah, don't come away with a, the obligation to receive the stranger, to help others, to be caring, to forgive, to turn the other cheek, to love people. If you don't see that in, in the New Testament, I don't know how you're reading it. <laughs> right. Well, Jim, we've been talking for about an hour now, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm super appreciative that... You got on the Zoom meeting today and then we got to talk about the history of Salvadoran conflict and how it informs what's happening currently. Is there anything that you felt like we didn't get to touch on that you wanted to add? No, I just, I, just, I think what one thing to, to, to look at in terms of uh, El Salvador, which I think is not only happening in El Salvador, and you flagged this earlier, but I, I just put on people's radar screens to just be very... Uh, very concerned and to pay attention to the ways different governments throughout the hemisphere and throughout the world are taking advantage of mm -hmm. COVID-19 to advance really ugly problematic agendas. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, keep your eyes and ears open, push back against that. And uh, El Salvador is one place where this is happening, but it's certainly, it's not the only place it's happening in many states and at the federal level in this country and, and in other countries as well. So. And while we're thinking about COVID, there's a direct tie there and a tie to El Salvador. But thank you. For me, look, it's, it's been great. I'm, I, I'm great to talk to you, bounce ideas around with someone who's, you know, who's a cerebrona. Who's, who's <laughs> yes. All right. All right, Jim. Well, thanks so much. And we'll add the links to the University Network for Human Rights in the show notes so people can support your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and thanks, thanks to your listeners and your public.